With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a very special week on the FCPA Compliance Report. On Monday, August 31st, will be my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This week, I've asked five of the top compliance commentators around to share with me some of their reflections on what has changed from their perspective over the past 10 years or so in compliance. We begin with Mike Volkoff on changes in FCPA enforcement. Matt Kelly visits with us about changes that he has seen from his business journalist hat perspective. Jonathan Armstrong talks about changes in data protection and data privacy. Jay Rosen talks about changes from his unique business development perspective. And finally, Jonathan Marks talks to us about the changes he sees in compliance mirroring those he saw in internal audit after the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. On my 500th episode, I'll talk about some of the changes that I've seen and also some of the highlights from podcasting over the past eight years or so. This is a very special week. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I have enjoyed producing it and bringing it to you. Thanks for being a part of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you will stay with me on the journey to episode 1000. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode in my lead up up to my 500th anniversary show. Today, I have with me the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Matt, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking part in this project with me. Tom, I am happy to do it and congratulations on getting all the way to 500 podcasts. So, Matt, you are uh, in our Happy Everything Compliance group, the only journalist, and you have been in, in the field of compliance probably as long as Almost anyone I know, although you didn't start out compliance, you were, I would say, more general business journalist. But what I really wanted to visit with you about is from your perspective in the fourth estate, what have you seen in the past uh, eight, uh, five or so years, changes around compliance? So um, what have you seen or what have you observed? Well, a couple of things come to mind, um, particularly from that perspective of being a journalist who writes about this more than a professional who does it, uh, I have been struck foremost by the way that corporate compliance has sort of moved into the mainstream uh, of business news, at least, and discussion about business. Uh, It was not the case, certainly when I started writing about it many, many years ago, and even within the last eight years, you know, but what was that, 2012, 2011, 2013, 
people who paid attention to corporate compliance would understand what corporate compliance is. But once you got outside of that, trying to tell people, oh, I, I write about corporate compliance or I'm a corporate compliance professional or this has big implications for corporate compliance, a lot of people wouldn't understand really what that was. Um, and I think that is very much changed today, uh, especially among the white collar world. Um, even if you are not in the corporate compliance or in a second line of defense function, you know, I think most sales executives, uh, most R&D people, um, they would definitely, most marketing people, they would understand what corporate compliance is. They understand that it matters and it can't be ignored. Um, and I think that they understand that they have to do it. It's not something the compliance function does. And I just see the compliance person walking up and down the hall once a month. Um, so that the way that corporate compliance has sort of injected itself into the conversation in the, the halls of corporate power, I think that's a big, big change. It's much more mainstream now. Um, the other thing that sticks out to me from a media perspective is how social media has actually let many more people debate corporate ethics and compliance issues, even if they don't necessarily know all of the nuance of it. You know, I don't think anybody um, is really casually talking on social media about Justice Department guidance or COSO frameworks or anything like that. But it is very easy to pick out what you think a corporate ethics scandal is and then talk about it on social media and you come up with a clever hashtag and then suddenly it's off to the races. And now all of these other stakeholders that companies might not have had to worry about before or not take as seriously before. Now they do have to take them seriously. And social media has really democratized other people's ability to hold companies accountable to ethical standards. And it's not even necessarily the company's ethical standards. Um, what I like to say often is that social media allows people to find other like-minded people and form alliances. And if the alliance is sufficiently strong, it can take on more powerful enemies, quote unquote, and they can take on corporations and occasionally get the corporations to bend to their will. Um, one example I'll give you that sticks in my mind, I think it was in 2018, was that Google was interested in bidding on a Defense Department project and using some sort of advanced analytics technology. I can't recall if it was artificial intelligence or facial recognition or something, but Google employees didn't want to do it. And they could find each other on social media. They could make an issue of this. And they said, we're not going to do it. And they, Google didn't do it because Google can't do it without its engineers. And you see similar issues around corporate ethics, maybe in the retail sector where consumers will say, company X, I, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the products you sell. I don't like that you're working with the Trump administration. I don't like this. I don't like that. So I'm not going to buy it. And then the worst case scenario for companies in that position is their consumer stakeholders will find common alliance with employees inside who don't like what they're doing either. And then the hashtag is cutting across multiple stakeholders. And suddenly that is a very powerful force to hold companies ethically accountable to some other group, not to what the CEO and the board say. These are our mission statement. These are our values. Other stakeholders could say, you know what? 
we don't care what you say. These are our stakeholder values. These are our mission statements. And we're going to fry you on social media until you bend to our will. Some companies don't. Some companies do. But none of that would have happened. Certainly in 2004, before social media, it really didn't happen all that much in 2012, your eight-year time frame here. But, you know, it happens all the time now. So you see things like that. That's probably two of the big changes that uh, have really struck me over the last eight years is that within the company, compliance has gone mainstream. And in the world as a whole, thanks to social media, we talk about corporate ethics much more, even if we're not very precise about it. And it's pretty messy and riven with disinformation that happens in social media. But the conversations are happening and they can get quite awkward for companies. So that that's what jumps out to me. So, Matt, on the let me pick up uh, on the social media point. I've, you did, uh, I think, a great job of talking about the amplification. But what are the implications of uh, increase in social media around speed and speed moving a message along literally around the world and a corporation's response? Does it impact governance? Does it impact ethics? Does it impact compliance? Is there a speed component to social media in addition to the amplification component? Uh, I think so, because um, first off, on a very practical level, it means that disinformation or wrong information, just erroneous information, let alone specific deliberate disinformation, both of those things can spread quite rapidly. Uh, And then companies are stuck trying to defend themselves against something that is not true. Um, But I think more than that, it, it creates a pressure where companies, if they don't pay more heed to what are our ethical values and our priorities and how well do we understand them, how much have we built the consensus so that we are going to do this set of things no matter what, if they can't build that vision and that framework and that focus, they are constantly going to be responding to other distractions on social media. And rather than pursue your strategies, you're going to be pulled in a zillion different directions every day by somebody else because of this ethics issue or that ethics issue or this group over here that resents what you're doing. Now, those things are always going to happen and be with you, but the difference is in how you respond. And it behooves the company to really think through what are our core values? What are our ethical priorities? And I always say priorities rather than values because priorities are what comes first. What is the most important thing we're going to do? And when we say to be ethical, well, what does that really mean? But if you don't lay out that specific set of priorities and values that underlie those priorities, if you can't do that, then you can't focus on a strategic direction and start pursuing it despite the noise. Um, instead, you're going to have a whole bunch of people in and out of your company second guessing how we respond to the noise. And then All you do is that's your business model is responding to noise and spoiler alert, responding to noise is not a viable business model. It's a viable waste of time and draining away of profit. And then nothing good comes down that path. So the more people can focus on that at the beginning, build a strong foundation, the more you can weather those noise storms that are only going to get worse. And now let me go back to your first point about corporate compliance really moving into the mainstream. And here I'm going to move a little bit further back to the first decade of uh, this century. 
where we had, uh, I would say, an explosion in FCPA enforcement action, sort of starting around 2004, and we had some very uh, high-profile, high-dollar enforcement actions now, of course, uh, that have been overtaken, but for the time, they were quite extraordinary. Siemens at $800 million, Halliburton at 591, or excuse me, $571 million, uh, Panel Pina, to, to name a few. But we also had Enron. And uh, at the time uh, before WorldCom, Enron was the U.S.'s largest accounting scandal. We had Sarbanes-Oxley come out of WorldCom and Enron from uh, the 2008 um, financial crisis. We had Dodd-Frank. Do you see those as converging lines which uh, put corporate compliance in the more in the mainstream of the corporate discussion? Or in your mind, do you really see them as separate? Well, I sort of see them as separate because the accounting scandals, Enron, WorldCom, um, a couple of others, Adelphia Communications, HealthSouth, and all the others back then, uh, they led to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That's very true. But when you think about what the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was, what it was trying to achieve was greater reliability of financial statements by assigning more accountability for getting those statements right to the corporate audit committee, to the CEO and the CFO, and then to uh, follow up with very specific internal control, um, financial controls, segregation of duty stuff, and a whole lot that corporate ethics and compliance officers probably don't encounter all that much. But it was an accounting thing. You had to get the accounting right for the sake of the capital markets. And even to this day, you need to get the accounting right, but you need to get it right like four times a year when you file the 10Q. And you really can't do that well unless the financial systems are working every other day in the quarter, not just that 90th day when you file the Q. Um, But it is more about you have to get these things right four times a year. Along come these new waves of anti-corruption scandals, which are much more about how's the business actually conducting itself at any given time? You know, not just on the four days a year when you're filing the 10 Qs, um, but in every deal that you're doing, deals over many years. um, The FCPA enforcement really got more to how is this company overseeing its financial transactions day after day, month after month, year after year. And if they stink, if they're sketchy, if they are based on the fraudulent premise that our product is awesome, when in fact it's just, you know, our success is based on giving bags of cash to somebody to buy our product, um, that is, you know, that's not necessarily tied to accurate financial statements. You know, no FCPA enforcement action has ever led to a corporate restatement, Um, but these are still very serious types of misconduct. So I would say that you know, they, they're in the same ballpark, but they are not the same thing. And FCPA compliance is much more about your ongoing attention to good business practices year after year. SOX is more about your good corporate accounting practices. So you really, so you don't screw it up at least the four days a year when you're filing the queue. And that's not the same. Matt, let's turn to uh, a little bit more at the present day. Uh, one of the things that I've observed about the time we're in of COVID-19 and the coronavirus health crisis is 
it seems to me that trends that started percolating in 2018, 2019 have really accelerated and accelerated almost exponentially in some ways. And so we overlay that with uh, a massive, the world's largest anti-corruption enforcement action in 2020, the Airbus case, uh, a massive anti-corruption enforcement action with both a foreign component and U.S. domestic component uh, by Novartis in June and July of this year, a Department of Justice release of information in the form of 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and the uh, FCPA Resources Guide second edition, um, all with different emphasis, yet uh, trends really moving forward. Are there any things that you saw or noticed in the past few years that you think are really accelerating now and things that uh, compliance practitioners need to think about a little bit more moving uh, past coronavirus? I think a lot about a certain convergence of corporate ethics and compliance functions and audit and risk management on the other side in that uh, we don't talk much about audit, but what's happening with the audit committee and the internal audit people uh, is that the audit committee is telling the head of internal audit, we need more information about emerging risk and we need more ability to monitor when a risk drifts into the red zone. So what does internal audit do? They talk a lot about data analytics. They build very spiffy algorithms that allow them to study the data in the corporate transactions. And a lot of these analytics and these algorithms, they're really good. And they can quite quickly spot here is a strange pattern in the invoicing or in the purchase orders that we're doing. And then we get to focus right in on that and find out what's happening. But after audit, builds the algorithm, studies the transaction records, comes up with some recommendations. The algorithm is given back to the business unit. And then audit says, go forth and monitor yourself. I'll be back next year. Or if it gets weird, give me a call and I'll come and I'll look. But really, what is the difference between continuous risk monitoring or auditing or whatever you want to call it, but a continuous ability to spot aberrant transactions. Instead of doing it once a year or once a quarter, you're doing it every moment because the technology allows you to do that. What is the difference between that and a corporate compliance function, which is trying to make sure that people stay within prescribed policies and procedures and they don't drift into some sort of a, a bad practice? Well, if you the person drifts into a bad practice that will lead to bad transactions. But if audit is starting at, we can find the bad transactions, which very quickly leads us to the bad person. I still think that sometime before the end of this decade, we will see a convergence of those two things. And I don't know exactly what that's going to be. I know some organizations already have a, like a souped up super function of audit and business integrity, and it's all under one person. Um, uh, and I used to say that I thought this would be commonplace by 2030. I do think that because of the disruptions from COVID, it now could be much more common by like 2021, which is in five months. Um, I think that that is really trained or refocused the corporate mind on emerging risks and how do we understand them and dissect them. And then it feeds into what I said about what internal audit does and how, it is approaching the same sort of good business practice goal from the opposite direction as corporate compliance, but corporate compliance is, you know, they're still approaching that goal. And what happens when both of them meet in the middle? I don't know, but 
you know, if we do this when we get to the thousandth podcast and we do another retrospective in eight more years, I'll be very curious to see what we have to say then. So, Matt, uh, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but uh, I'm not sure I've ever publicly thanked you. Uh, so I wanted to take this opportunity to do that in many ways. Uh, the courtesy you extended to me uh, when you were the publisher of uh, Compliance Week, allowing me to write a column and participate in Compliance Week events, uh, set me on down the road that uh, I've been on. Uh, you've been a good friend over the years, a good colleague, and frankly, someone who I have enjoyed reading and I, as a lawyer, I can't think of a higher compliment. So uh, keep up the good work, and let's see what the next uh, 500 episodes bring us. Well, thank you, Tom. I look forward to that. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report as I trek towards my 500th anniversary episode, which will be August 31st. I hope you'll join me tomorrow where Jonathan Armstrong will talk about changes in compliance from a data protection, data privacy perspective. This special series has been a special production of the FCPA Compliance Report for the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again tomorrow as I move towards my 500th anniversary episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.